Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Luke, chapters 9, verses 28 to 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Michael, for reading our scripture this morning. That was beautifully done, our gospel lesson. And James and musicians, wow, that hymn, Be Thou My Vision, is one of my favorites. And it is so perfect for the lesson today. And it was so beautifully done. Thank you for sharing your giftedness with us. I had chills listening to you. That was wonderful. Uh, I have to share a quick story. Yesterday, uh, I received a text from Davis who sends us his prayers and blessings. And he texted me and said, uh, hey, just thinking about you, uh, blessings on your preparations for tomorrow. And I thought I'd be funny and, and pull his leg a little bit. And so I texted back, what do you mean? Am I preaching tomorrow? And I'm pretty sure I gave him a heart attack. <laughs> he responded back, I don't know, are you, are you? And I said, yes, I am. I've got it under control, don't worry. <laughs> but I think I gave him quite a fright. Let's pray together. Oh God, that our eyes may see, that our ears may hear, and that our hearts may receive the message you have for us today. Amen. When I was in seminary about 10 years ago, I was placed at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital as part of my field education experience. And if you don't know what field ed is, it is the place where theory meets practice. So it is where what we were learning in the classroom was to be applied in a real life, uh, real ministry setting in the real world. And so I was placed at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital and my first week there, they uh, assigned me a, a floor to go and round on, a unit to round on. And that just meant that I was to go and check on families and assess their spiritual needs. Um, I had no idea how to do that. And I knew that many of these families would probably want me to pray with them and pray for their sick child. And I definitely had no idea how to do that. I was so terrified and I had grown up in the church. I am a lifelong Christian, a lifelong United Methodist, in fact. And I realized in that moment of terror as I went to knock on that first door that the church did not equip me to practice my faith in this most, most basic and foundational of ways. Teach us to pray. 
That is what the disciples, Jesus' closest friends and companions asked of him. And so it looks like we've had trouble with prayer for a while. But there was something in the prayer life of Jesus that was utterly attractive and compelling because when Jesus prayed, things happened. The disciples could see that all of Jesus' power and authority, his ability to be the person he was, flowed from this deep connection he had with the Father. He was always reaching out in prayer, and God was always reaching out to Jesus. God was affirming Jesus and his life and his ministry and his purpose over and over. It's a mutual relationship. And so what I see when I look at the prayer life of Jesus is that there's always a connection between prayer and identity. There's always, always a connection between prayer and identity. Jesus was first confirmed by God. His divine identity was confirmed by God in his baptism. And we remember the dove descended and God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And from that moment on, whether Jesus is praying in the desert, fighting temptations, or he is praying to discern who his 12 disciples will be, or he is praying out to God, calling out to God in the garden of Gethsemane, all of his prayer life is centered on his relationship to the father. Now we remember from last week, Laura preached on Peter's epiphany when Peter recognized Jesus as the Messiah and claimed Jesus as the Messiah and Peter recognized his messianic identity. But we also remember that a confession of faith, a proclamation of faith is not always the same thing as an understanding of God's will. We can confess the truth, this is true even today, we can confess the truth without a full understanding of what that truth means. Because belief isn't about knowing all the answers, belief is about becoming who we have been created to be. And Jesus told the disciples at that time, don't tell anyone about me being the Messiah, he said, don't tell anyone because he knew that they didn't yet understand what being the Messiah meant. So eight days after Jesus first proclaimed his death, first predicted the suffering that was gonna happen, first said, I'm going to die. I mean, such an unbelievable thing for the disciples to hear when they've witnessed him do all of these amazing things. Eight days later, he takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain. Now, there are several things that we have to pay attention to. The text asks us to pay attention to several elements of this story. And the first is, why those three? Why Peter, James, and John? Well, we can look back a chapter, and we can find a parallel to the transfiguration story. This parallel is when Jesus went to Jairus' house, when the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus was pronounced dead. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. Okay, all right, same guys. And the child's father and mother, they were all weeping and wailing for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. So these three disciples are the ones who have already seen Christ's power to restore life. They have seen him bring back 
a girl from the dead. But I doubt that they had really examined their assumptions about what that might mean. Because if you can bring back the dead, if you can restore life, why on earth would you ever choose to die? So now Peter, James, and John and Jesus are together again, hiking up a mountain. And Jesus, we have to remember, is their friend and their teacher, their leader, even their Messiah. They have seen him perform miracles, but they've also been traveling with him and they've probably smelled his B.O. They have probably seen him sweat. They have seen him eat and drink and he's probably belched in front of them, right? Like he is a human and he is limited in their eyes to his human form. The second element to pay attention to in this story is the mountain. Mountains are very rich symbols in the Bible, right? Scripture is full of stories of mountaintop experiences. They're these symbols of triumph, of victory, of union with God, discernment with God. If you've ever been with us to Beersheba, on a women's retreat or a men's retreat, you'll know this feeling, this, this feeling of looking out on God's creation and feeling yourself restored, a mountaintop experience. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses having a mountaintop experience. And when he travels up Mount Sinai and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights and he receives the law from God. He, he receives the law for the Hebrew people and that marks their identity as chosen people of God, remember? And just being in God's presence makes Moses' face shine like the sun. So much so that when he comes back down the mountain, he has to put a veil on his face because he is so shiny. And then many years later in the story, in this epic saga of the Hebrew people and the Israelites being God's people, Elijah the prophet also goes up the same mountain and it's called Mount Horeb then. And he goes up and God gives him the discernment and the wisdom for the next steps to guide the people on their journey to continue to claim their identity as chosen people of God. But mountains are not easy to climb. Moses and Elijah had their fair share of suffering and trials before they could get up to the top of the mountain and they even had suffering and trials on the other side when they came back down. If you're not familiar with these stories, go to Exodus, go to 1 Kings this afternoon in your prayer time, reread those stories, familiarize yourself with what was happening in the Old Testament when God was inviting Elijah and Moses into relationship, but mountains are not easy to climb. And so a third element of this story is tiredness. Now I'm convinced, I know Peter, James, and John, when they took that trip with Jesus, they knew to expect something. Because remember when Jesus prays, things happen, right? So they knew to expect something, but that doesn't change the fact that they were weary from journal journeying. They'd been living a migrant lifestyle. They had traveled up this mountain. It probably was exhausting. Who knows how long Jesus had been praying at this point. And we all know sometimes our pastoral prayers even can get rather lengthy, our minds wander. They were tired. You can't really blame them. Sometimes it can be hard when we're tired to wake ourselves up. And I don't just mean physically tired, right? I mean like emotionally and spiritually 
tired? Who has been emotionally or spiritually tired in the past six months? <laughs> yep. I am familiar with those kinds of tired. I know you are too. It can be hard to wake up when things seem bleak. It can be hard to wake up and remember to look for the kingdom. But if I can, if I can metaphorically wake myself up in my prayer time with, with Jesus, when I can become aware of God's presence, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, something amazing happens. Parker Palmer writes in his book, A Hidden Wholeness, that the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of the tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge and out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. Sometimes we treat prayer as an act of crashing through the woods, calling out wildly for God. And God is there even when we do so, but sometimes we need to still ourselves to practice silence and contemplation, to even become aware of our own stirrings in our soul, to hear how God calls out the image of God alive in us. So while the disciples were very sleepy, they had patience enough, they were waiting on Jesus and trusting in Jesus enough that they could wake themselves up, become fully awake in time to see the glory of this vision. So I wanna lay the scene for you. So, so they wake up and they see Moses and he is the representative of the law and they see Elijah and Elijah is the representative of the prophets and they see Jesus and Jesus is the Messiah. And can you imagine what was going through Peter's mind when he saw these three powerhouses of the faith and they are all shiny and this is glorious and this must be a vision from God and we need to make, we need to make camp because there's a lot to learn here and I wanna study and I wanna just throw myself at the feet of these people and he is setting up camp on the mountaintop. He is wanting to live into this kingdom experience and just as he says what he's thinking out loud, a cloud comes and the text says that it was like going from daylight to midnight and they were terrified and a voice comes out of the cloud and that voice says this is my son my chosen listen to him You see, Peter, he had misinterpreted the vision. He was trying to put a mystical, mysterious experience into a category he could understand, but Jesus wasn't the next in line of human change agents. He wasn't one of three, he was three in one. You see, Moses and Elijah, they're representatives of God. Jesus, Jesus is God. He is to be listened to, not over and against the law of Moses, not instead of the prophets, 
but they are standing together on a mountaintop because Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the proper interpreter of those things. He is the source of those things. He is the word made flesh. So we see Jesus, the fleshly, earthly, sweaty human being in this act of transfiguration reveals the Christ, collapses time and space. He's not shiny because he's in the presence of God. He's a light from within. He is the source of all light, the light of the world. He's the source from which all light comes, the source of the sun, the source of the stars. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that feels like or to look like, what it looks like for Peter, James, and John to witness the light of the world? And he is also a fully mortal human being who will be killed by such a faulty and grievously sinful human institution as the death penalty. We can't overlook that cloud. That cloud is important. That cloud is significant because that cloud, that dark cloud, it tells us this mountaintop experience isn't one of rest or retreat or renewal. This mountaintop experience is centered on the reality of death. It confirmed what Jesus had said eight days earlier that he would have to suffer and die. Verse 31 says, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Departure there is exodus. Does it look familiar? Exodus. Exodus. For us, the reader, it, it, almost foreshadows, um, it almost foreshadows not just the end of something or the leaving behind of something, but the beginning of something else. It's reminding us of the Exodus story. It's reminding us of a newness of life, a freedom from captivity, but the only way to that freedom is through the cross. And we'll see in just a few chapters, that same dark cloud descends again and noon becomes as midnight as Jesus hangs on the tree. But here's the thing about dark clouds. Even when pitched, thrown into pitch darkness, Jesus is still there. We still have Jesus by our side, even if we can't see his glory like we once did. In our present darkness, in our own corporate and individual clouds of fear and worry, we need but be quiet to be able to hear his voice. Do not be afraid. Listen to him, God says. My friends, we have a lot of voices speaking into our lives on a daily basis. So let me ask you, what voices do you need to block out and rebuke to be able to better hear the word of Christ in your life? Are you setting aside time each day just to listen? Or are you filling your time with the news and the media? Are you feeling confirmed in your own viewpoint? 
Are you distracting yourselves with Netflix and Instagram and Spotify and I'm calling myself out here. If you've gotten into baking, as many of us have, are you listening for Jesus when you bake the banana bread? Are you listening for Jesus on the Zoom calls? Are you listening for Jesus in the car? Jesus is speaking to us always in all of these places. We just need to listen. Because Jesus does not sound like the voices we hear. He does not sound like a talking head on Fox News or on MSNBC. He doesn't sound like that. He sounds like a mother, a mother who is calling her children home. When we can hear that voice, when we can feel that love, we can't help but to become aware of the grace at play in our lives. Because through grace, these dark clouds, they lift. And through grace, grief turns to joy somehow. And through grace, even death turns into new birth. Don't ask me how, I don't know. We will never fully comprehend that in this lifetime, we cannot. But here's what we can do, we can pray. If you don't know how to pray, if you are like how I was 10 years ago, and you feel uncomfortable with the practice of prayer in a public setting or even in your own life, we are here to help teach you how to pray. We've got some refuel series coming up over the next weeks and months. Refuel series that you can tune in on online and you can learn about different types of prayer practices, different um, prayers, different types of prayers, the history of prayer. We can equip ourselves, church, to be better prayers because through prayer, we can see God's glory just as those disciples saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, we will see God's glory not only in ourselves when we come to recognize the Christ alive in ourselves, but we'll come to see Christ alive in all people and every person in whom we encounter. When separated families are reunited, when the unhoused get keys to their home, when a death conviction is overturned, when prisoners are set free, when black lives truly do matter to all people, when the powerful are brought down and the people who have been pushed down are brought up, when the powerful freely give away their power, when our persecution of others stops, we will see God's glory because just as the transfiguration of the human Jesus taught us who Christ really is, through prayer, we are enabled to see the world and all the people in it, not as our limited human sight would have us believe, but as God sees them, right? As like beloved, fully human creatures of God. The enemy tempts us. The enemy will try and tell you that there are people in this world who are beyond redemption, that they cannot be reached, that they are not welcome. That's a lie. Prayer gives us kingdom eyes. The kingdom as it was so eloquently depicted for us by the prophet Isaiah 
Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, do you clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. We gotta go down the mountain now. We have been transformed into new people through the grace of Christ. Through prayer, we are transfigured so that our insides are better reflected on our outsides and the insides of others are more visible to us. Transfiguration is a lot like communion. It is an outward manifestation of an inward truth. Nowhere do we witness this more clearly than in the sacrament of communion. Jesus' physical human body is the point at which heaven and earth meet. That body is alive in you, my friends. We take communion to remind ourselves, and it's alive in me. His presence is is the point at which our beloved community can be formed, a truly inclusive community. At this table of grace, when, when we have kingdom eyes, we will find ourselves looking at every single person, regardless of skin color, regardless of sexuality, regardless of politics, regardless of background or gender or ability or language or whatever else, it doesn't matter, whatever separates us from each other, we will see every person as God sees them because they are alive through Christ. They are animated through the word that called them into being just as it called you into being. This table is set for all of us this morning. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. This table is a vision of the new creation where all are invited and all are welcomed and all are affirmed. So may it be so in the name of Christ. Amen.